This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sorter, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a privilege because we very rarely do picture books. For whatever reason, we um, we do a lot of adult fiction and non-fiction, but very, um, we've done a few. But uh, My Strange Shrinking Parents, what a beautiful book. You know, uh, I, I feel so honoured to be talking to you today. Welcome. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's That's very kind. Yeah, and everybody seems to think like I do. Zeno is a writer and artist who lives in Melbourne with his young family. After studying Chinese literature and migration law at university, he ended up as a dishwasher, uh, which seems to me to be natural progression. (laughs) Later, he went on to work as a journalist, an English language teacher, a consular officer, an advocate for refugees and immigrants, and a jewellery designer. So uh, there's a lot of diversity there. I guess it's the left brain meets the right brain is what we're talking about here, aren't we, Zeno? Yeah, there's a lot of bouncing around and uh, I lived overseas for quite some time as well. And so I'm just one of those one of those individuals that uh, I grew up loving to do creative things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I got to kind of those university years, I became a little bit worried that my creativity probably wouldn't be a reliable source of income um and so i just bounced around and and tried many different crafts and worked for the public service for many years which was wonderful but eventually always found my way back to uh to creative work and, and sitting mm. at my desk but also and... you don't have to do one thing exactly do you? Yeah. you know i like i've um i mean you know i'm clearly identified in in my business better reading but even uh, you know amongst the small following that I have, the miniature fame, and everybody just associates me with books. But there is a lot of things that I do that are so different to reading uh, and talking to authors. You know, I bake, I cook, I walk a dog, I have family, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there is lots of things you can do in your life. It's not just the one stream. Although I will say, I think people that find something that they love to do, like clearly you have, we're the lucky people, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was, I grew up with parents who, um, my mother was a pianist and it was all she ever did. She started out as a concert pianist and then moved into teaching. And my father was a teacher for his entire life um, at the same college, at the same, uh, at the same college that eventually turned into a university. And so I I kind of, I had that mindset when I was young that you you lock yourself in at an early age and then you just kind of ride that occupation through your life. But, um, but yeah, I, I remember having this discussion with my father later on in life. My father knew a lot of artists, and he used to say to me that the most interesting people he knew didn't know what they wanted to do when they were forty or fifty years old. That's right. Um, but kind of the unknowing and the bouncing around and that ex- exploration can lead to beautiful creative work, even if 
it can be anxiety inducing and a little bit stressful when, uh, sure. when you don't have the clear path. But also, too, it can be multiple things that you do at any given time as well. Definitely. I remember going to see um, a specialist, a doctor here at in Sydney at RPA, and he was a gastro intro, what do they call them? GIs, anyway. I can't yeah. say the, the word at the moment. But he loved to read. So when I went into the office, when I went in to see him, he was surrounded by beautiful books. And I thought, isn't that a lovely partnership? <laughs> isn't that a lovely partnership? He's looking into people's guts day in, day out, <laughs> and then he's reading, you know, great literature. It's lovely, isn't it? Beautiful. Yeah. Listen, let me finish off the intro. Zeno was the CBCA New Illustrator of the Year in 2021, and his first book, This Small Blue Dot, was a CBCA notable book, winning multiple prestigious awards. So today, as we said, he's here and he's talking to us about my strange shrinking parents. It's the winner of the CBCA Picture Book of the Year, 23, congratulations, and is a heartwarming story that reflects on his own migrant parents' sacrifices to create a universal story about what it means to give to those you love. Do you know, um, my experience is also that my parents immigrated from Lebanon for a better life for their children. And I I was born here, so they had six children. They came, they came and went and, anyway, eventually uh, settled in Australia. And I, for a long time, and, and you might you might be able to shed some light on this, you know, in terms of your experience. I always thought that because of my parents, that the next generation is expected to do better than the last. You yeah, know? I think I think that that is that's definitely a motto that's that's carried by many second generation children, and that expectation is on their shoulders, and and some of them wear that burden quite heavily. Um, because whereas, it's not amongst people that were born in the country through exactly. generations; they don't have that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think that uh, having attended, I I went to a, a local public school um, where the vast majority of the kids were um, migrant kids, second generation immigrant kids. And we were a very mixed bunch. My, my friendship group was incredibly diverse. A lot of Asians, Middle Easterners, Sri Lankans, Indians, South Americans. And they came from incredibly varied backgrounds. Their parents were all very different. But there was this, this common understanding that uh, their parents would have some say in the occupation path that they took when they uh, graduated from high school and university, um, and also instilled a, a certain type of, of work ethic in them. Most of my friends were, you know, doing a service station or um, fast food jobs from about the age of 14 or 15 as soon as oh, I was. they were yeah. able to be. <laughs> I was working um, from a very young age. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so uh, that's that was part of. I I used to work at service stations and um yeah, and also did a little bit of dishwashing and waitering yeah um, throughout school and university. But you know, it was almost unknowingly for me because I didn't have that in well that insight at the time because I'm a lot older than you. And so when I was growing up, it wasn't that I spoke to other people that felt the same way as I do about being better. It was that I accepted that that's how the generations went. That's how it worked. Because why on earth would they have left a place that they loved and left their family to come out here? Yeah, I think there's also a lot of difficulty in that there are huge gaps in the understanding that the first generation and the second generation have. Mm. Um, I was quite fortunate in that 
both of my parents spoke quite good English. Mm. And so they had a little bit of an understanding about what was going on at school and who my friends are and how to judge people and, and understand How to talk culture. to the teachers when yeah. being naughty. <laughs> yeah, but, but I had a friend, um, my closest friend actually, who came from a Turkish background. His parents couldn't speak fantastic mm. English. He was the oldest boy and he had lots of younger siblings and so parent-teacher interviews, he was the one that was leading them around and talking to the teachers. And then he would go back and, and report back to his parents about what was going on. And so from a young age, he had almost a parental role within the family. And he didn't, even though it was, I, I could see that it was difficult for him at some times, particularly when there were issues with his younger siblings, it was kind of a burden that he carried gladly. He never complained about it. It was never, it was never really an issue for him. He just innately understood that because of the That's way that his, his family worked, that was that was what he would have to do. Yeah. Interesting. I was talking uh, to Caroline Overington the other day. Um, she does a book review section in the Australian and she's a great friend. And her her lineage is that her parents, one of them, I can't remember who is German, and she's only first or second generation Australian, but calls herself Australian. And the question to me was well, how come it doesn't happen in people that are, like when you're looking at, at, say, Irish immigrants or German immigrants or, you know, they become Australian much more quickly than people like you and I do, don't you think? Yeah, and I think it does. It does have to do a little bit with the idea of a dominant culture um, and where other cultures and other immigrant groups fit in. The thing that I was always fascinated with when I was growing up is the way that, the most recent immigrant group is targeted and kind of personified by the media as an other. And when I was young, it was very much the uh, the Vietnamese community. Mm -hmm. I remember um, that. Yeah. And then as I as I got older, and you know, after September 11, the Arab community. And I, as I mentioned, I, my closest friend is Turkish. I also have a lot of uh, Lebanese and Egyptian friends. Mm. Um, and what happened to them at that time was terrible. I had a, another close Turkish friend um, who changed, who, who finished university and uh, couldn't find a job, even though he was probably the most personable guy I've met, incredibly hardworking. And he spent a year delivering soft drinks to fast mm. food and takeaway places. And eventually he decided to change his name to Tony. And within a couple of weeks, yeah. you know, he, he, he had job offers. It's um, terrible, and, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. Uh, and so I, I remember going through all of that. And then, as I mentioned, I spent a bit of time overseas. And when I came yeah. back, um, sure enough, it was the, the Indian community that was, that was being targeted mm. at that stage. And now things have, have moved on from that. And so growing up, it was always those shifts were always um always fascinating to me and and trying to mm. understand how well, the, how the dominant culture yeah is. yeah yeah it, I mean, it's so interesting you should bring that up because you know here in sydney before marrickville became gentrified which i think it is now but if i reflect back on that we we grew up in glebe and then we moved to marrickville and i didn't want to go you know it was considered very working class and i felt that moving from glebe to there was you know going backwards in my 12-year-old wisdom. But anyway, <laughs> when you look at that suburb in Sydney, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it started off being predominantly Greek. So there were Greek restaurants, Greek cafes. That was my impression of it very, very early on. And then as different migrant groups started to come to Sydney, so it went through Greek, then it went through 
Vietnamese, then it went through Arab, the one stretch, the one shopping stretch, and then it got gentrified. (laughs) And it's interesting because that's what happens with communities. They come and they work. They work very, very hard, and then they move on from the place they landed in, usually. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it is a fascinating story. I remember uh, growing up, I lived in the I lived on the outskirts of the housing commission flats in Carlton, just on Ligon Street, and so um, I was actually born in a in a quite small country town, which is the reason I speak so slowly. But um, but as when I got to grade three or four, we moved to Melbourne. And it was the first time I'd met kids that had names that were just as weird as as mine was. And so I felt a strong bond with that group of kids. And those kids have continued to be my friends, uh, closest mm. friends, um, until till today. But I remember that there was one boy who lived in those flats who also went to the same high school and he had a, an Asian background, Vietnamese background. And he and his brother were very gifted at mathematics. And I remember in high school, um, he was really happy because they were moving out of the flats because his brother, his older brother, who was still at university, had got um, a job working as an actuarial, um, wow. an actuary wow. in, in one of the large accounting firms. And so wow. the first thing they did was move, was out. move out and <laughs> kind of <laughs> and move up that social chain. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I remember I remember thinking that that was that was incredibly satisfying to see that yeah. happening with someone so young and and for that that still a teenager still at university but mm. but carrying the whole family on but isn't that so fantastic I mean and that is also the Margaret experience too where you look after mm. your family because yeah. you're kind of all here for that purpose isn't it you know yeah that- yeah. Because you Definitely. wouldn't, I mean, most people would just, well, that's the child, that's the child's money and off they go and live their own life, but not for people of um, avowed backgrounds. What are smarty pants, right? How many actuaries do we have in the world? <laughs> not many, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it was no. really impressive. And he, the the boy that I was friends with, um, I, uh, I used to, we both went to a uh, Melbourne University and and uh, he was always studying dentistry and uh, he used to kind of nudge me and 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 tell me that you know I'd have to study hard to, <laughs> to get a good job and and, uh, and and make a good career out of. You well, know. Although I've got to say, I really I've got from my own personal experience, I think being a dentist because I hate the dentist so much. Uh, and I go twice a year, and I could imagine there's nothing worse for me to be looking down someone's mouth day in, day out. Nothing worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel as though if I had all those brains, I'd be doing something else. Yeah. I have I have to say that I have two daughters now, and, and we went to a dentist last week because my youngest is only six years old. She needed to get uh she has two teeth coming through, but the, the, yeah. the two, the baby teeth aren't budging. Yeah. And so she had to get them removed. And the way that the dentist handled that just combined so many different skill sets. There was kind of, you know, teaching, there was, you know, child psychology, <laughs> yeah, there was, right. you know, the technical skills of being Not just to industry. Yeah. yeah, and I thought this this woman is an absolute magician, you know, yeah. what, a, what a champion to be, oh, yeah. to be able to do this so effectively. Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to talk about how you came to illustrating and writing and how, how, how your first book came to be. Yeah, um, I, I was one of those kids who... Um who always loved to draw and I do a lot of school visits now and I find that a lot of children drop it at about the grade grade three or four wow. um and and I dropped it as well around that age and I remember exactly why I dropped it it was um I was in class and I was drawing a samurai on a horse and the little girl next to me who was a lovely girl she leaned in and she uh she asked me what I was drawing and then she told me that that looked nothing like a horse so I tried to change it and then she she kind of leaned in a little bit later and told me to look more like a dog now. And I remember my little heart breaking because I had just assumed that whatever I put onto paper, people would recognize. And after she said that, I, I developed more of a, you know, a, a degree of self-consciousness yeah. about what I was making and, and, you know, whether there were other kids in my class who were much better artists than I was. And I concluded that there were certainly other children who were much better than I was and that, you know, maybe I should be spending my time doing something else. And so I, I kind of, I left it for a while. And then what, what brought me back were uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, wow. As, yeah, as, as right. a young boy. Yeah. I mentioned I grew up in a country town and we didn't have a TV at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I wanted to watch TV, I'd have to knock on our next door neighbor's uh, door. And she was a, an old lady called Betty and, and she would let me in at 3.30. Every oh, she was afternoon. cool. <laughs> yeah. she was actually, cool, Betty. She'd sit down with me and we'd watch an episode. But when I got home, I would just imagine all these other adventures that the Ninja Turtles could go on. And I couldn't wait for the next week. So I started making little stories, adventures that the Ninja Turtles would go on. And I didn't really care how good the illustrations were. It was just about, you know, creating these adventures and being able to spend time with these characters in their world. Um, And so that got me back into drawing. And I think since then, it's really been something that even if I'm doing another job or I'm studying hard at university, it was always something that I'd try and come back to in my own time. And I found that it was something that, especially when I was feeling overwhelmed or particularly stressed out or things weren't going particularly well, drawing was that thing that I would always return to because within the four corners of that white piece of paper, I had complete control to do whatever I wanted, which was, I think, possibly therapeutic when I felt that within the rest of my life, I, I lack control. Um, and so, as I mentioned, I, I worked overseas for a number of years. And um, Where did you and, work? 
I worked at the uh, Australian Consulate General. So out of university, I went to work for the Department of Immigration. And then because I'd studied Chinese language and my mother's Chinese, and so I was always fascinated by um, the culture, um, I, I managed to get a posting to uh, to Shanghai. Um, wow. And so yeah. it, was, it was only meant to be quite a short posting, but I met my wife to be there who was also... Uh, working in Shanghai, but she was originally from um, Nepal. And so uh, we kind of started living together in Shanghai and uh, and we were there for six years. I didn't, oh, wow. I, I didn't want to leave. And so when it did come time to leave, my heart was set on uh, continuing to work in the public service in Canberra. Um, but we travelled there and we spent a little bit of time in Canberra and um, and we decided that it probably wasn't the best choice for both of us. Um, and so we we decided to settle in in Melbourne as well. And so throughout that time, I was working as I was just doing illustrations for magazines in Shanghai. And then coming back to Australia, I was hoping that um, I would be able to get representation through an agency and just work as an illustrator full time. But coming back, that was a much larger hurdle than, than I was expecting. And I needed to put more time into a portfolio. And so I decided to, uh, to move into immigration law and, and work as an immigration agent for a number of years instead while I built that up. And so while I was building that, I decided to make some uh, children's books and, and they, um, they were much more successful than I was expecting. And so this is a, a, a pathway that um, wasn't necessarily planned, but, but I'm incredibly grateful for. So you're writing them as well? Yeah, I am. And um, I've always loved writing. And at university, I um, I did a number of uh, creative writing subjects. But uh, I never thought that I would be able to necessarily combine the two. I did spend a bit of time doing comic books and graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to combine the two disciplines is, um, I find, really fascinating because they both do completely different things, particularly um, when it comes to children's books. I mean, as, a, as somebody who, who works with books yourselves, I find that when you're reading, that the written word has to pass through the conscious mind, which can often be quite judgmental and critical. I generally only give a book about 20 pages before I know whether I'm in or out. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you're able to combine it with illustration, illustration works in almost an opposite way. It has direct yeah. access to the emotions. Yeah. And so being able to bring those two together in interesting ways is, is something that, yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by. I always think, because um, I've, I don't know if you know this, but I grew up, you know, on picture books, because it was a long time before I could read. My parents, we were speaking only Arabic at home. So when I started school at six, I couldn't read. But I loved picture books because I didn't have to read, you know, I could tell the story myself. And I have had a passion for them over all these years. And I think the good ones are genius because they're short stories. You know, they say so much in so few words. Yeah. Um if that's that, that's yeah one of the fascinating things about picture books is the word limit um yeah. and so i went in and just to i guess explain a little bit more to people who are listening within the publishing um industry as a whole there is pressure to uh, to keep picture books a 32 page picture books with un, under 500 words and i spend a lot of time shopping for picture books at the uh at the op shops the salvos mm-hmm. and st vincent's and um and it's amazing to me because the further you go back, you go into the, you know, 
picture books from the 90s, 80s, 70s, they get the word count just expands. And, you know, picture books in the 70s may have had 1,000, 1,500 words and, and children <laughs> didn't find that an obstacle. Um, but in the current, within the current marketplace, um, there is that pressure with the word count. And because of that, when I was approaching writing picture books, I found that the, the best analogue was uh, poetry because within poetry as well there is a real need to cut through to the emotional core and make a connection with the reader in a very very you know small number of words and so i grew up loving poetry as well and so i try and bring that into picture books as as much as possible and i find that that lyricism that a lot of poetry has also um resonates really really powerfully with with young children I interviewed Mem Fox. I think I might have interviewed her more than once. But anyway, she talks about that. She says it's about rhyme. It's not just about words. It's the how you put those words together. But I just just reflecting on what you've just said in terms of word counts, you know, my favourite children's books and, and a lot of people, Where the Wild Things Are, Who Sank the Boat, um, John Brown Rose and the Midnight Cat, these are books that uh, picture books that I remember. Very few words. Yeah. Way under five hundred words. Yeah, and there is, um, particularly with where the wild things are, there is, um, there is a sense that the words are limited to provide the reader with more emotional scope to place mm. their own experiences and their own negative feelings over the top of that story. Which is which is something that the picture books do allow, and I think some of the the greatest picture books, um, and Sean Tan's The Arrival, I think is is just kind of the pinnacle of, oh. of what can be done. Is yeah, there, there are no words, Ooh. and yet it very powerfully provides a different reality and an emotional experience, an emotional journey that those characters are going through. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I would love to be able to uh, to do something like that. And I have experimented with um, some wordless narratives, but it is it is really really difficult and, mm. and very tricky thing to, mm. to pull off. Well, my strange shrinking parents. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny. I was only in conversation with somebody recently, and they were talking to me about how old people shrink. Um, tell me about the idea of that and how long you'd been working on it. The the initial idea was. Um, the first book I made, this small blue dot, I made it. Um, it was made for my daughters. I, yeah. I didn't actually, I didn't think that it would, you know, have this other life as a as a book that was um, out in the world. But uh, I made it for my daughters after my um, father and my Chinese grandmother had passed away within a few years of each other. Mm. And so, with that book, I tried to put down all the interesting and wise things they'd taught me. Um, so that the book could be a bridge between them and my girls who never really had the chance to meet them. And so when it came to making My Strange Drinking Parents, I wanted to make something that I would want to give myself as a child that was, you know, six or seven or eight. And I grew up as a very strange and, and lonely kid, not only because, um, you know, my parent, my mother had a, had a Chinese background at a time where there weren't many immigrants living in Bendigo, yeah. but, um, but also I had, you know, this ridiculous name that I could never understand why my parents had, you know, mm. had given me this name instead of a, a sensible name from the Bible. And, uh, and then I also had shocking eczema. 
Um, oh, so I had eczema all over my face and, and my neck. And uh, and one of the treatments my mother found for my eczema was a uh, a cream called hydrocortisone, and, and she uh, used to put it on my face. And, uh, and it was a very strong cream. I don't think we'd read the instructions properly. And so after a couple of weeks, all my eyebrows fell out. And so I went through, <laughs> went through <laughs> primary school with, uh, with, with no eyebrows as well. And so... I had this basket of issues and um, didn't really make any meaningful connections with with the kids I was growing up with. And so I wanted the book to be a map to myself as a young child um, to explain how uh, how our sense of belonging and our sense of who we are changes as we yeah. go through life. The things that we might be embarrassed or ashamed of when we're younger um, can become things that we embrace later on. And then the other big inspiration was um, was I mentioned my I have a younger a younger daughter who's now six years old, just like me she has eczema um, and quite terrible eczema. It's reminded me a lot of how what I went through when I was a kid, and uh, with my eczema I would not only scratch during the day but I would scratch at night while I was yeah. sleeping, and I would often scratch so furiously that I'd remove a layer of skin oh, from the back of my leg. And so between the ages of, I think, about five and nine, many mornings, I would, the first thing I would do, I would sit up in bed and I would have to spend a couple of minutes to gather the courage to rip the sheets off my legs quickly because they'd become stuck overnight rather than do it little bit by bit because I knew that that would just prolong the pain. And so what my mother would do, um, we, we really tried everything. We tried acupuncture and, and uh, Chinese herbal medicine and lots of different treatments. But what my mother eventually committed to doing is that as I was drifting off to sleep, my mother would um, go into the, the kitchen and she would get a chair and she would set it next to my bed. And then she would reach out and hold onto my hands as I was falling asleep. And many day, many mornings I would wake up and she would still be there with her head on the side of my bed and her arms still out, outreached. Oh, um, and, and I remember that very clearly now because uh, often I'll hear Maya, my youngest daughter, I'll hear her scratching the back of her leg or the back yeah. behind her elbows. Um, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning, and I want to do nothing more than roll over and go back to sleep. But the thing that gives me the strength to kind of crawl out of bed and shuffle down the corridor is my memory of what my mother mm. did for me. And having done this many nights and sitting with Maya and holding on to my hands, it occurred to me that what my mother was actually doing was she was sacrificing a night of sleep for herself so that I could get a good night's sleep instead. Um, and that was really the other big inspiration for the book because I grew up in a family that wasn't, I guess, outwardly affectionate. In children's book, mm. love is often shown as hugs and kisses and rainbows and, and starlight and sunshine, and that wasn't necessarily what no. I received from my parents. And so as I've become a parent myself, I've, I've just developed a huge admiration and respect for what they did do for me in this quieter type of love. Um, that they were expressing every day. And so that's what I was trying to uh, to show through this story. Mm. My, um, We've got to go soon, we're out of time. My, and I've told this story before on the podcast. I mean, my mother, she sewed glow mesh purses. She had a corner shop. My father worked in a factory. There were six children, five girls and a boy, and she would knit our school cardigans for the winter. So you ended up with a cable, hand-knit cable cardigan, and I hated it because 
I just wanted the machine variety that everybody yeah, yeah. else had. Yeah. And I was so resentful when I'd walk into that school with this beautiful, what I now know is a beautiful cardigan. Yeah. Because it was different and I didn't want to be different. I was already different. And what I would give now for her to knit me a cardigan. <laughs> it's that, it's, it's that, yeah. isn't it? Mm. It's it's incredible how at a certain at a certain age you went, they mm. completely shifted, it flipped and, and it that, does, there doesn't is it? that recognition, yeah. 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 Which Zeno, is, we're yeah. uh, we're out of time. What a pleasure to chat with you. Congratulations. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, and I hope you just you know write more, illustrate more, and we can talk soon. Beautiful. Thank you. It was it was a real pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for your time. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.